Go ahead and have your seats. Good morning. Everybody doing well? Yes, I got some head nods, so we'll take that as a yes. Uh, I'm doing great. Apparently, Roselle's paying my mortgage this month, so... Isn't that what you said? That's how you started this morning, was wouldn't you be happy if I paid your mortgage, right? I have like 30 witnesses, so... All right, all right. What's that? Yeah, it's recorded, so... I think that's legally binding in most states, actually. Um, so I want to welcome you. If uh, you weren't in here for the welcome uh, at the very beginning when Roselle welcomed us uh, to prepare us for worship, then th none of that makes sense to you. But uh, he did promise to pay my mortgage, I'm pretty sure. So um, want to welcome you. I'm really excited. Um, you know, like Jay said earlier, this is such a great time of year. It's starting to cool off. Um, the colors are beautiful. College football is in full swing. Um, NFL too. I do like NFL, but nothing's better than college. And so um, just, uh, yeah, just enjoying the beautiful weather, the beautiful season, uh, college football, everything that comes with the fall, I just love. And so I hope you're enjoying uh, your fall so far as it's just now getting started. Um, you know, this month, we are officially in October now, as of today, which kind of seems crazy to me. Um, but this month actually marks uh, a really important anniversary in the history uh, of Christianity. And so uh, in October, 500 years ago, uh, there was a, na um, a man named Martin Luther. Now, many of you, if not all of you, have heard of him, even if you may not know a lot of details about his life uh, or what he did. And so what, what I really want us to be able to do for the month of October is um, to really stop and think about the influence that not just Martin Luther, but and, and there were many others as well, but the influence that many of the the reformers of the 16th century had uh, that have affected us today. And so here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to kind of walk you through a little bit. This is not going to be a, a sermon on history, um, but I'm going to walk you a little bit about some of the most significant events of, of the early 16th century and how it literally um, worked to transform and change the trajectory uh, of our world. And uh, so many aspects of even the scientific revolution uh, and the Renaissance owe part of uh, their influence to the Protestant Reformation. Um, in a time where in the 16th century, roughly uh, 90 plus percent of all Christians in the world were Roman Catholics, minus um, a, a portion of people who were what we would consider Eastern Orthodox, there were two main streams of Christianity. You had the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox churches, and that was it, minus a few small pockets of of, of, of churches and people that, that really never made a big impact. Uh, but with the Protestant Reformation, everything changes. And the fact that you're sitting in this room today says that you have been profoundly impacted by what took place uh, in the early 16th century. Um, and so because and through what we call the Protestant Reformation, um, new churches uh, were birthed. Uh, the Bible became accessible to people in a language they could read. Before this time, the only Bibles that were authorized um, and permitted to be printed uh, were those in Latin. If you were caught possessing or printing or producing a Bible in any other language, you could, and many men and women were, executed for that crime. 
And so because of the Protestant Reformation, um, it opened the door for people to have the Bible in a language they could read and understand. Uh, and because at that time, only the priests were trained how to read Latin. And so only priests, and even most of them couldn't really read Latin. Um, and so many even of the priests couldn't read the Bible for themselves either. And so this marks a giant shift in the trajectory of our world, because we all know how the science... Uh, the scientific revolution and the Renaissance have influenced the world, uh, and especially in the West. Um, and so we owe so much to the events that took place in the 16th century. And so the Reformers had kind of five major points uh, that influenced their thinking and their teaching and their writing. Now, to be fair, the Reformers didn't exactly put it how we're going to put it today. It's more of a modern way of reflecting back on what they taught and did, and that we have sort of put some words in their mouths, that, but they do accurately reflect um, what they taught. And so uh, because uh, in that day in the 16th century, Latin ruled the world, um, these five phrases get put into Latin. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks going through these. Um, don't worry, you don't need to know Latin, and no, this is not going to be all about history. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at something that happened in history and allow it to springboard us into what the Bible actually teaches and why it matters for our lives. And so um, these five are listed here. Uh, sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which is grace alone. Sola Fide, which is faith alone. Solus Christus means Christ alone. And then Soli Deo Gloria means to the glory of God alone. And so this is the five major points that the Reformers held as they sought to kind of revamp the trajectory of Christianity. And so um, we're going to start today by talk, talking about sola scriptura, scripture alone, and why that matters um, for our church and for our lives personally. Uh, and so I want to back up for just a minute uh, and talk just a little bit about Martin Luther and who he was and how this came to be such an important part of, um, of, of his life and, and the trajectory that it put all of us onto. Martin Luther was born in uh, 1483 uh, in Germany and um, was born to uh, kind of a blue-collar family who really wanted him to do better, really wanted him to move up within the social ladder uh, of their society. And so they, they pushed and did everything they could to send Martin Luther to law school. And so um, Martin Luther went to law school in Erfurt, Germany uh, in the early 1500s, and he hated it. As any of us who, if we were forced by our fathers to go to law school, would probably feel about law school, that's how Martin Luther felt about it. He didn't want to go, but he was kind of pressured by his father, and he went and was just kind of doing what uh, he felt like he was supposed to do uh, for, for the family. Um, to kind of help raise the family up. He really felt like law school was a waste of his time. He kind of felt like it was pointless. Like he, he wanted to sort of make a, do something important, and he just didn't feel like studying law and just having dry, boring arguments 
was really where he wanted to be. And so he was already considering quitting law school when in 1505 he got caught in a thunderstorm um, while traveling between home and Erfurt, Germany, which is where he was in law school. And the storm was so severe, um, Martin Luther was convinced and was assured that he was going to die. Lightning was striking trees all around him, striking the ground all around him, um, you know, the kind of the hair on his arms and the back of his neck was starting to stand up. Um, he was convinced that at any point he was going to be struck by lightning and killed. And so he drops to his knees in the middle of the storm and begs God to save him and does what many of us have done in different parts of our lives, begins making promises, which is always dangerous, right? And so he promises God, if you will save me out of this thunderstorm, I'll become a monk. And uh, he didn't die. And so, but unlike most of us who in the past were like, God, if you will please help me pass this test, I swear I will, whatever, fill in the blank, right? And then like three days later, we're like, God knows I didn't really mean it, right? Uh, Martin Luther took his promise very seriously and became an Augustinian monk uh, that year, dropped out of law school um, to the great dismay and disappointment of his father and his family. Uh, he left law school and joined a monastery and became a monk. Uh, and here's what happened internally inside Martin Luther. The first thing is Martin Luther, um, when he got outside of his normal lifestyle, outside of the university lifestyle, right? You, sometimes we think of, oh, you, you go to college and, you know, you know, get a little crazy at times, right? We, we just assume that's like a 20th, 21st century phenomenon. It's not. And, um, and so Martin Luther um, lived like many university students of his day and our day. Um, and when he got into the monastery and began spending more time in prayer and reflection and reading, um, really started to become convinced that he was so sinful, God was going to send him to hell. It did not matter what he did. It did not matter how many times he prayed. It did not matter how many times he confessed. Um, he was convinced God was so angry over his sin that no matter what he did, he was going to go to hell. And so it pushed him to get obsessive um, about doing anything and everything he could to get God off his back, um, to get God's wrath away from him. He would literally spend hours at a time in a confessional with a fellow monk or priest confessing every little sin he could possibly come up with that he had or might have committed. He would spend hours at a time in there. Then uh, he would leave and sometimes as he was walking out would remember oh, I think I might have forgot to, to mention one, and would go back in. The other priest in the monastery got so annoyed that one of them finally told Martin Luther, You're, you need to leave and don't come back until you actually do something seriously wrong. Because they were even getting annoyed with the pettiness of everything. He was so scared that if he forgot to confess something, God was surely going to send him to hell. And so as a part of that process, it forced him into the scriptures to study more. Um, what the monastery ended up deciding to do was to send him 
uh, to the University of Wittenberg um, to get a PhD in theology. One, because they were kind of tired of dealing with him because he was kind of annoying. He was so obsessive about all this. And they thought this will be good for him um, to, to be in a more academic setting where he can really study the Bible, study Catholic tradition and law and teaching, and he'll get over this obsessiveness. And so what happened is Martin Luther got to the University of Wittenberg, uh, began teaching, uh, working on his PhD in theology and in teaching. Uh, and as a part of this process, not only was he disturbed about his own sin, he became very disturbed about something else. And it was a practice that had become uh, common and popular in the Roman Catholic Church, and that was the selling of indulgences. You may have heard of that. You may know what that is. But um, what happened was um, Pope Leo X decided he wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. The St. Peter's Basilica that's now in the Vatican. If any of you have been, it's unbelievable. It's beautiful. If you ever have the chance to go, you should. Uh, I got a chance to go there in college. And so he was wanting to build St. Peter's Basilica, but didn't have the money. So the Catholic Church began selling something called indulgences, where you could go to a priest, you would pay money, give them your name, they would write your name down, and they would hand you a certificate that had the papal seal on it that absolved you of sins, or you could buy one for a dead relative. And the Roman Catholics believe that, and still to this day do, that when you die, you go to a place called purgatory, where you pay for all of your sins. And once you've paid for all your sins in life and been cleansed, after that, then you go to heaven. So it's not as bad as hell, but it's really bad. And you have to spend some time there until you basically pay for all the wrong you've done. Then you get to go to heaven. And so they were teaching people that if you will buy one of these indulgences for one of your family members who's already dead and in purgatory, it'll give them the fast track to heaven. They don't have to pay for um, their sins anymore. The Pope will absolve their sins and they get to go straight to heaven. You could buy them for a friend, for a child, for yourself, for a family member, so that they could basically, right, like skip the line um, and go straight to the front of the line. You know, like when you buy those special passes at Disney World, like you pass, fast pass, thank you, right? So it was a fast pass uh, to heaven. And Martin Luther saw what was taking place and it infuriated him. Although he didn't understand uh, how to get away from God's wrath over his sin, what he did know was buying a piece of paper could never do it. And so it forced him again even deeper into the Scriptures, desperately searching for answers. And Martin Luther's great illumination for came in 1517 as he was reading Romans. And in Romans 1, Chapter, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this is what Rome, uh, Martin Luther reads. And, and the reason he's in Romans is he was just assigned to teach a class on Romans at the university. So he begins pouring himself into this book, studying it. And it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And it was in that moment um, that Martin Luther would later talk about when he, end up, he ends up writing a commentary on the book of Romans, that for him, this was the moment that, that the veil was lifted. It was reading these verses right here that everything in his life uh, was turned upside down. 
Um, interestingly enough, another future church leader, a guy named John Wesley, um, would his life would be changed by reading Luther's commentary on Romans 1, 16 through 17. Um, and this was the moment when Martin Luther realized, there is nothing I can do to take God's wrath away from me. No amount of confession will ever take it away. No matter, no, no amount of guilt will ever take it away. No, no, no amount of penance will ever take it away. No amount of indulgences that I could purchase will ever take God's wrath away. And he had spent his life desperately finding a way to get God's wrath taken away. And what he realized was there was nothing he could do. But it was something God would do. And it was through faith that God would make Luther and all of us righteous, that we would find freedom in, by faith in Christ because it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that represents the power of God in our lives and is what, what it says, the power of God for salvation. And in that moment, the veil was lifted for Martin Luther, and he realized where he had gone wrong. And so Martin Luther began teaching against the very church that he was serving under as a priest and a monk and a lecturer in a university, and began teaching that what the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church is teaching is wrong. You'll never find forgiveness in a piece of paper, and you'll never find it in doing more and more and more good works. You're going to find it through the grace of God, through the avenue of faith in his gospel. And so in 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther writes a 95, what we call the 95 thesis. He writes 95 uh, theses, uh, and he walks up to the front door of the Wittenberg church, and he nails it to the front door. Um, which sounds strange, but that was kind of like the community bulletin board back then. And, uh, and it was 95 issues or problems he had with the Catholic Church and its teaching. Um, as a response, the Catholic Church grew very angry, both because they had this priest monk who was telling everyone the Catholic Church is wrong, also because he had convinced people to quit buying uh, indulgences, and all of a sudden now the church couldn't raise enough money to build St. Peter's Basilica, and they were losing money. And so... Um, so eventually, Martin Luther gets called before um, uh, a trial of some cardinals um, and the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, um, who was essentially a puppet for the Pope. Um, and it was there that he declares his allegiance to the Scriptures and is excommunicated out of the Catholic Church. And that is what officially begins the Protestant Reformation. What what Martin Luther wanted to do was not start a new denomination. What he wanted to do was reform the Catholic Church. He wanted to bring the Catholic Church back into line with what Scripture teaches, but was instead excommunicated from the Church. And now what we know of as Protestantism, um, basically any Christian denomination or church or group that doesn't belong to the Roman Catholic Church, all of that stems from Martin Luther's stance uh, on what Scripture teaches and uh, the consequences of being kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church.
Um, and so there's this great movie. Um, it was made in 2003 uh, about Luther. Um, and I want to show you a clip, uh, uh, just a small clip of it, uh, as Luther is standing before um, these individuals in a trial. And uh, while obviously it's a, 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 you know, a historical recreation, a lot of the quotes and speeches of Martin Luther in this are taken from actual transcripts uh, of what he said, and, and this is a representation, really, of, of what changes the trajectory of the modern world, and especially the modern Western world. And so let's take a look at this clip together.
What we probably don't realize is that Martin Luther was putting his own life in jeopardy at that point. Um, just the previous century, uh, there was uh, a man that we often refer to as John Huss, um, at least is the English version of his name, uh, who took a similar stand against the Catholic Church and was burned at the stake for it. And so while a lot of times we assume like, oh, you stand up to certain leaders and oh no, you might get kicked out, not a big deal. Um, this was a major deal because at that time, Martin Luther was assuming uh, that he was going to be executed. As a matter of fact, um, this trial took place in Germany, but it was originally supposed to take place in Rome. Um, and uh, the prince uh, who ruled the region under which uh, Martin Luther lived refused to deliver him to Rome uh, because he, as he told Luther and others, uh, if I deliver him to Rome, Martin Luther's not going for a trial, he's going for an execution. And so Martin Luther's stance here um, was him taking the chance of putting his own life in jeopardy for what he passionately believed in. Uh, Martin Luther's not the first person uh, to take a stand for the Bible. He's not the first person to take a stand against the Roman Catholic Church. And he's certainly not the only reason or the only person involved in the Protestant Reformation. And, and I want this clear too we don't raise martin luther up uh, and worship him in any way or any of the other reformers or any other of the men and women who whom we essentially stand on their shoulders um, we lift up and honor one name and one name only just as paul said as he talked about um, jesus in philippians chapter 2 that because of who Jesus is and what he had done, that, that God has exalted his name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. In Philippians 2.11. And so we're not here to raise up Martin Luther or any of the other reformers. What we are here to do, though, is to recognize a legacy. A legacy that celebrates its 500th birthday this month that has influenced the freedoms and the opportunities that you and I enjoy and share. And also a legacy because the fact that you have access to a Bible, that you can read in your own language, whether it's the one sitting next to you, the one you brought, or the one on your phone, is there in part because men and women did give their lives or were willing to risk their lives to give you that opportunity. Because there were many men and women who believed so passionately that this Bible is so valuable, they would give it all to make sure you had the opportunity to have it. And what was Luther's ultimate stance was Scripture above anyone else. That's what got him in trouble. That's what got him excommunicated. That's why his life was at risk. Because he was willing to say, I'll put the Bible above a pope. I'll put the Bible above a cardinal. I'll put the Bible above some ruling council in my life. And you even heard him say it in the film, and that's an actual quote. Obviously, Martin Luther didn't give it in English, but um, an actual quote from him that he would be willing to rec recant if anything could be proven to be false by Scripture. And what became a rallying cry for the Protestant Reformation 
is sola scriptura, scripture alone. That we hold the Bible up higher than any other human authority. That we hold the Bible up higher than anyone else's opinion or a group of people. That this is our ultimate authority for how to live life and what to believe. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. This is Peter, the apostle of Jesus, who had followed Jesus for several years. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is verse 16. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice uh, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, uh, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's important here is that Peter makes this claim that the authority comes from Scripture, not someone's opinion or interpretation. And that's essentially the stand Luther took. Because the Pope or any other religious leader within the Roman Catholic Church would claim, we take our authority from God's revelation, Scripture being part of that. And Martin Luther was willing to go, no, 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 no. I don't want your interpretation of Scripture. I want Scripture. And Peter, essentially, Jesus' own apostle, when he writes this to a church, is saying the same thing. That authority comes from Scripture as God uses Scripture and as God used uh, men and women to write Scripture. We're not interested in someone's interpretation. We're interested in what God's saying. Uh, Peter makes one more comment about Scripture uh, in this letter uh, that I want to read for you. 2 Peter 3, 15-18. And he says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. So we read Paul all the time. Um, whether it's Romans or Philippians, we've already um, mentioned both of those today. Um, and so Peter is now referring to, to, to Paul. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here's what I love about what Peter says. Two things. Number one, Peter says, hey, Paul can be really hard to read. So if you ever read Scripture and you're like, I don't get this. Like, this doesn't make sense. I'm having a really time under, hard time understanding it. Take comfort, because even Peter is going, listen, I get it. 
Paul's hard to understand at times. Um, so take comfort in knowing that even Peter himself, who spent uh, m- those three years side by side with Jesus, who Jesus had entrusted as the leader of the disciples, the apostles, to help build his church, Peter's going, yeah, sometimes Paul's too smart for me too. Um, so take comfort in that. But, but here's the other point that I want to make and show. Here's what he says in talking about Paul. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so even here, Peter is talking about Paul um, as equal to the other scriptures. And here's why I think that's important. Even Peter recognized the value and the importance of what Paul was writing and its influence in the church and Christian lives. There are plenty of people who would love for you to believe that a group of men sat around in a room in the fourth or fifth in the fifth or sixth centuries um, and decided what was going to get to be in your Bible, and they made the decision on what made the cut, what didn't make the cut. Um, you know, if you've ever read the Da Vinci Code, then that's the, the story portrayed in that um, fictitious novel. And if you ever watch um, The Daily Show or Bill Mayer or any of those, that, those, those shows that love to mock Christianity, they love to have guests on who will talk about the absurdity of believing in the Bible because really it was just a group of men who decided what they wanted to be in and what they didn't, and they made the cuts and edits and changes that they wanted to. The problem with that is um, it's completely historically false. One, we know that they weren't making edits and changes to it because we have um, documents of of the New Testament especially, scriptures that date back to the 2nd and 1st century, so we can prove that those edits and cuts weren't made. And even in the 1st century, Peter is writing and teaching and talking to other churches about Paul's writings being scripture. And, And this is where we begin to grow our confidence in what the Bible is and what it's for. Paul will write in 2 Timothy, he's writing this letter to a young pastor uh, who's dealing with some issues in his church, and he says this in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And just as Peter stated, Paul states that um, Scripture has this God influence in it. Peter said it this way, as the Holy Spirit would pick up and carry men along as they were writing God's Word, Paul would say that it it was breathed out by God as it developed and as it started to work, as, as men were writing through the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is why we hold Scripture up to such a high standard, higher than anyone else's interpretation or opinion. We want to go back to Scripture. Here's the last Scripture I want us to read today. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, here's the deal. Here's where I think the rubber meets the road for you and I. It's one thing for the Bible to claim for itself that it's true. Right? That's almost expected. As a matter of fact, that's why a lot of your neighbors and coworkers and friends who don't believe aren't interested in you quoting the Bible to them. Because you quoting the Bible to them, you're quoting to them a source that they don't give any credit to or authority to. And so, of course, we would expect the Bible to say good things about itself. We would expect the Bible to talk about itself in this God-influenced way. And we certainly believe the claims of the Bible, but here's where I think for you and I it becomes reality. We believe, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's Word when we read it and it changes us. See, the writer of Hebrews here says that the Word of God is living and active. There's a lot of times when we may sit down to read the Bible, but then find out that it begins to read us. That the Bible begins to expose things that are deep down in our hearts that even we don't want to acknowledge are there. And so it's one thing to say the Bible makes claims about itself. But where I believe we really become convinced that the Bible is in fact God's Word as it claims to be, is when we read it and it changes us. As we dive into it and it begins to expose things in our hearts and begins to open us up to new realities. As God begins to work in and through the Scriptures to transform us, to make us new. And so along with the early Reformers, we cry sola scriptura, Scripture alone, that the Bible is our final and ultimate authority. Now that doesn't mean there are no other authorities. That doesn't mean God doesn't speak in other ways. But what it means is that in everything, all other authorities and all other ways of which God may be speaking to us are filtered through this. And if it doesn't align with this, then we reject it. That includes everything I ever say to you from this stage. 
I hope that when we're looking at the Bible, I can point things out to help illuminate something new. Maybe we talk about the original Greek language and here's what this word means. Maybe we talk about some historical background that help us to understand the situation better. Uh, Maybe I can help to connect the dots between this scripture and this one over here and this one over here to paint a fuller picture. But you should not be interested in my opinions and my interpretation. You should be interested in what Scripture has to say. My words have no power to do anything for you. I mean, at best, if I'm really good, I mean really good, I can motivate you enough to walk out those doors and go, I want to do better. But we all know what happens by tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., right? My my words have no power. But the Word of God has the power to expose what's inside of you, to to, to pierce inside of you, to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is the ability to cut through the wall that you put up so that I don't see who's really there. The wall you put up so even your spouse may not see something that's really there. A wall that you put up so that even you don't have to see your own junk. It cuts through all of it to expose what's there and to help bring wholeness and healing and newness. This is our ultimate authority. This is the final authority. This is the filter through which we examine and understand everything in our world. And Martin Luther, along with some other reformers, helped to pave the way that we no longer have to rely on someone else's interpretation. We no longer have to rely on someone else telling us what's in here. Now we have it in our hands in a language we can understand with the ability to engage with God's Word as our ultimate authority. And so in this month of the 500th anniversary, it's important for us to remember what matters so dear and where we have put uh, the ultimate authority of our lives and the way in which we trust and utilize this tool that God has given us to reveal his hope and plan of salvation for us, that it is through his grace by faith that we find salvation as the Bible teaches us how we really can find a gracious God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here to celebrate who you are. And Jesus, we don't want to elevate any man or woman of history uh, to a position where we begin to worship them. We, we are thankful for the influence that Martin Luther has had on our world and in our lives. But Jesus, we are here to worship and to celebrate you and who you are and what you've done. And Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our minds. Lord, give us a renewed passion for your word. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for just a minute. My prayer for you this morning, for all of us, 
is that God would do a work in our hearts and our minds to help us to understand why Scripture is so important. And that we would take it seriously and that we would make it a part of our lives. And so maybe as you sit here this morning, maybe maybe for you, you just need to take a minute to repent and say, God, I'm sorry that I have neglected your word. That I have rejected the one the one tool you use primarily to mold and shape my heart. And maybe you just take a minute to to think through the role the Bible plays in your life and maybe you need to re-examine how you utilize it and the opportunities you give it. Maybe you sit here this morning and you just are full of worship and thankful. Thankful for the way that God has worked in and through history to bring you to this moment of having the freedoms you have to worship freely, to read freely, to celebrate freely, that you don't have to depend on anyone else to get to God, but that He is near you and that you have direct access to him now. Lord, thank you for this time. Would you be honored by all that we say, do, think, and pray in this moment as we celebrate who you are, what you've done, and that, Lord, that you are near, that you have drawn near to us. We don't have to depend on anyone else to come before you, to come before you in prayer and confession and worship. And we do that freely this morning do it to bring you glory.